Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Uh, I'm proud to say that this is the first episode from the hernia content team at Carolina's Medical Center. So we will start with brief introductions. Uh, first, we will uh, introduce uh, the most senior member of our team, Dr. Henniford. Hi, uh, this is uh, Dr. Todd Henniford. I have been at the Carolina's Medical Center now for almost 25 years. We began our uh, hernia program officially in 2004 and have uh, worked hard uh, through the last 20 years or so in, uh, in, I guess, propagating abdominal reconstruction and training fellows. And uh, next is the newly appointed professor of surgery, Dr. Vedra Augenstein. Dr. Augenstein, we're really glad to have you. Thanks, Sally. Um, I'm Vedra Augenstein. I actually did my fellowship here at Carolinas in 2010. So uh, if you do the math, I've been here for about 13 years now. And um, Basically, was very interested in minimally invasive surgery. Didn't know a lot about hernias, but then learned a lot about them in fellowship and uh, really uh, enjoy doing them now. Wonderful. And current uh, GI and MIS fellow, Dr. Monica Poltz. Thanks, Sully. I'm Monica Poltz. I'm the current fellow at the Carolinas Medical Center. I've had a fantastic time learning more about complex abdominal wall reconstruction and taking care of these patients. Uh, I'll be going to Miami in a few months to start uh, my job. Wonderful. And lastly, um, I'm Sully Ayuso. I am uh, a newly minted chief resident here at Carolina's Medical Center and will be doing my minimally invasive surgery fellowship at North Shore University Health System outside of Chicago. Um, so today we are going to be talking about loss of domain. This is a, a very common and hot topic uh, in hernia repair, um, and it's one that has very definition. And so when I think about loss of domain, I think about the ratio of the hernia sac to the total intra-abdominal volume. Dr. Hennifer, could you tell us a little bit uh, what loss of domain means to you in terms of its definition and then some, some considerations there? Well, and there's a, there are a number of papers out on loss of domain and how you describe loss of domain. And, and for the most part, the way I think about it is you, you kind of know it when you see it. Uh, if you can't, whatever's in, within the hernia sac, if you can't get it back into the abdomen and get the abdomen closed, that really is loss of domain. And that can be a very small defect or it can be a very large defect. And the approach to loss of domain has changed an awful lot and is very different from, from patient to patient. I think you know, definition-wise, I really, you know, if you have something, if you have a patient that's got uh, about 50% of their abdominal contents outside, certainly loss of domain. And I think that one of the reasons that we chose to discuss this as our first episode on Behind the Knife is that this makes it challenging to achieve primary fascial closure, which is one of our primary goals of any hernia operation. Um, when that is not achieved, Dr. Hennifer, what are some things uh, that you're worried about? Well, when we start breaking down you know, how we actually fail, there are multiple ways that you can fail with abdominal reconstruction. Traditionally, it was hernia recurrence. But now, and it's, it's wound complications and also particularly includes quality of life. So when we look at abdominal wall reconstruction and specifically loss of domain, one of the important parts of this is that getting the admin closed yields, uh, if we don't get it closed, it yields a significant increase in wound-related complications, mesh infection, and also failure of the hernia. If we don't get primary fascial closure, and specifically primary fascial closure over mesh, the failure rate's about seven times higher. If you develop wound complications, it's about three to five times higher. 
and but also too, uh, Mike Liang has demonstrated that there's a significant reduction in quality of life of the patients if you don't get primary fascial closed uh, fascia closure. Wonderful. Um, so initially, we're going to talk about kind of the preoperative approach uh, to working up these patients, and then talk about different tools in the toolbox, both preoperatively and operatively, to help achieve um, fascial closure in these patients with these massive hernias. Um, Monica, I'll turn it over to you to kind of talk about the preoperative workup. Yeah, thanks, Sully. So we see a lot of complex patients in our clinic uh, with multiply recurrent ventral hernias, sometimes with loss of domain. And I think our initial approach to these patients is similar, obviously, a thorough history and physical exam, obtaining any previous operative notes if they're available, um, knowing if the patient has had a component separation done in the past, what type of mesh they have, where the mesh is located. Uh, almost all of these patients get CT scans of the abdomen. Uh, this gives us a lot of information regarding their hernia anatomy, their abdominal wall anatomy, loss of domain, where we can enter the abdomen safely. Um, Dr. Hennifer, can you talk to us a little bit about the CEDAR application that was developed here? Well, uh, the, the CEDAR app is essentially uh, an app that was uh, developed by Paul Calavita, one of our residents, when he was in our lab, and has been published and has been was published about 10 years ago. Essentially, what it does is it took 500 patients with just over a million data points, and when you have that much information, you can start to predict outcomes. And so if when we've looked at what caused wound complications in our patients, there are three things preoperatively. One is diabetes, and we needed a hemoglobin A1C of less than 7.2 in our data. Some people will choose 8, some people choose 8.5, some people choose 7.5, but for us, 7.2. The other consideration is body mass index. For every point of BMI, you increase above 26, not 25, but in our data, the breakpoint was 26, you increase the chance of a wound complication by 1.008 times. And then lastly is smoking. And so early on, one of the first papers we wrote about smoking was in 2006 when Yuri Nowitzki was a fellow here, and smoking was by far the number one predictor of wound complications in our patients. So if we can control those first three things, then we can... Uh, significantly improve our outcomes in patients. The other things that make up the C-DRAP is what happens in the operating room. An enterotomy, just a simple enterotomy, significantly increases your chance of complications. Also, too, adding an external oblique release where you don't, don't save the perforating vessels increases the chance of wound complications. And then the other considerations would be things that you can't control would be things like patients who've had previous hernia repairs and, and that sort of thing. But it's a complex mathematical equation that CEDAR app is, and it allows us to be able to talk to the patients fairly authoritatively uh, about like their need to help us help them. That's a perfect segue into prehabilitation. Uh, you discussed a lot of the factors that I think are well known to people in this community and general surgeons, um, generally speaking, which are diabetes, obesity, and smoking. That's something that we're uh, quite obsessed with here at this institution in particular because I think we feel that that can, um, you know, potentially impact patients more than anything we do, not only before surgery, but after surgery. So could you tell us a little bit about why this is so important, specifically in these giant hernias or these patients with loss of domain? Yeah, so it, when we broke down our data looking at, you know, first, all patients, we look at all patients, the smoking, diabetes, and obesity impact abdominal wall uh, complications in, in written abdominal reconstruction. But if you divide the patient's hernias, defects less than 200 square centimeters versus defects greater than 200 square centimeters, you magnify 
the consideration of prehabilitation, meaning if you operate on people with uncontrolled diabetes with larger defects, you significantly increase the chance of wound complications compared to smaller defects. The same thing with smoking and the same thing with body mass index. The, the higher the body mass index and the larger defects significantly increase the chance of complications. So if someone's going to do loss of domain hernias, you really need to double down on prehabilitation. I mean, it's super important in all hernias, and there's data from Denmark which demonstrates even in epigastric and umbilical hernias, smoking and obesity significantly increase the chance of complications. Larger hernias, even more important. If you're going to call yourself a specialist and you're going to do loss of domain hernias, prehabilitation needs to be part of that. Wonderful. And would you say that there is a specific BMI cutoff that you use in your practice, or would you just say, um, you know, the more weight loss that you can achieve, the better? You know, we, we, I mean, I'd love to have everybody lose weight. And quite honestly, if someone, someone says, well, is 40 your number? I mean, 40 is a nice round number, but for every point of BMI, we decrease, we decrease wound complications. And you can actually, in our data, you can actually demonstrate for almost every point of BMI that we decrease, we save money. You know, smoking was worth $5,000 a patient. You decrease the hemoglobin A1C by one point, it's worth $3,800. Every point of BMI is worth about twenty-eight dollars to $3,200 for patients. And just in taking care of their complications. So if someone comes in with a body mass index of 45, you know, can they get down to below 40? My answer would be, I'd love for them to do that. If someone comes in with a body mass index of 32, if they can get down to 28, you know, I want to cheat I want to play on the margins as much as possible in every single patient. And so it's, it's not just a BMI of 45 or 50 that I want to work on. I want to work on everybody because I'm cheating. But if someone comes in, and I'd like to hear what Vedra has to say about this, if someone comes in as a body mass of 55 and they've lost you know, down to a body mass index of 45 and I can get their admin closed, I may very well operate on that patient because they have really anteed up and they've they've decreased their chance of complications. But I want everybody to lose weight. Yeah, no, I think that's a really excellent point. I agree with everything there. Uh, we are just trying to close the abdominal wall. I think that's the most important thing. And in these loss of the main cases, uh, even somebody who's very thin may have a BMI of 22, 23, may need to lose 10 pounds. And then some of the other things we're going to talk about soon as well, uh, anything that we can do to actually decrease the amount of fat in the abdominal wall. So you can actually close the muscle and prevent this patient from developing a hernia recurrence. Uh, but certainly, I think over a BMI of 35, 40, you're going to have increased risk of wound complications. And those are the kind of patients, electively, you should try to do anything you can um, from weight loss, drugs, and you know injectables and things like that, whatever we can do, uh, and counseling them to get the weight uh, off before the surgery. And I'll just say, too, I think that Vedra's uh, led a lot of what we've done as far as like choosing diets and helping patients with that. We want patients to try and lose weight on their own. So you know, we're big proponents of the ketogenic diet if it fits for them. Uh, I think Ozempic is actually is going to make a real change uh, for us and really help us. We also, if patients can't lose weight on their own, we'll send them to dietitians. And also our bariatricians are terrific. And then also we send about 185 patients for, for weight loss operations. And then we'll operate on them after they've lost their weight. That's wonderful. I Dr. think Argus. another important thing to uh, think about is uh, we need these patients to actually lose weight and uh, lose it pretty quickly. Uh, Katie Schlosser was our fellow a few years back, and she published a study basically demonstrating 
that there's a increase um, in hernia width essentially with time. So I think it's really important. Uh, we can't just keep telling these patients, yeah, lose weight, we'll see you later. They really need to uh, lose the weight soon so the hernia doesn't get bigger. Yeah, and I'll follow up with that. It's, I mean, we used to you know, tell people to lose weight, get your diabetes under control, and stop smoking. And and as as Vedra mentioned, Dr. Augustine mentioned, this paper that, that Katie did looking at almost 1,200 CT scans with more than one CT, at over 18 months, the defect would get 80 square centimeters larger, but the hernia volume increased dramatically as well. Wow. So we got to follow up with these people. Yeah, absolutely. That's wonderful. So I think that is uh, perhaps our most powerful tool um, in these patients. Uh, next, I would like to talk about uh, the use of Botox preoperatively. I know um, even in the time that I've been here, the amount of patients um, that we are giving preoperative Botox to has increased dramatically. Uh, typically, we bring these patients in about a month before their uh, planned operation um, and inject them uh, under ultrasound guidance uh, with specialty trained radiologists. Uh, we typically do this just the oblique musculature at uh, three points on each side, and we found this very effective in terms of uh, increasing our ability uh, to close fascia. Um, Dr. Argensen, could you tell us a little bit about kind of your approach when you use uh, Botox and how effective you found it? Sure. Uh, so Botox has been around for quite a while, as uh, many people are familiar with dermatological, maybe some neurological, and uh, also an ENT and a lot of different specialties. So it's fairly safe. And we started using it at our center probably over 10 years ago. And we have close to, well, well over 200 patients at this point that we've used Botox in. Um, and I think we started initially by using it in the really big uh, patients with, in the hernias that are loss of the main. Um, and uh, the basically what happens once you eject the patient uh, preoperatively about a month before surgery, the muscle, the lateral musculature of the abdominal wall will uh, essentially paralyze in a way that allows for the muscle fibers to lengthen. Um, and that helps uh, intraoperatively then when you do your dissection to close the abdominal wall. So once again, the same concept of closing the fascia in the midline. Um, so Botox has now become, everybody's using it around the world. It's still fairly expensive. Uh, so getting insurance approval, it's not FDA approved for the use in the abdominal wall, but we know that it's very safe and it works and uh, we just need a few more studies to actually get get it approved. Uh, certainly, you know, which patients need it, we still don't know that, uh, but we in our center have been using it for the really the big defects and avoiding component separations, et cetera, using it. And I'll give you a little bit of an idea. We published a article in the Journal of Surgical Research um, a couple of years ago. Uh, in that cohort of patients, the average uh, defect width was 15 centimeters, and the average defect size was um, 280 centimeters. Um, and so that's just a, kind of an idea of the types of patients that we're using Botox in. One of the other things that I think is very interesting, um, and we've discussed uh, a little bit in the papers that we publish on this, is um, the location of these hernias on the abdominal wall. So is there uh, a particular location, um, Dr. Augustine, that you found that Botox is more effective in terms of potentially reducing the need for component separation? Yeah, definitely. So the hernias that are going to be uh, sub-xiphoid or suprapubic, uh, the very top of your uh, ventral abdomen and lower part are going to be very hard. Uh, you're not going to have as much of a release just because your obliques are not going to, um, you know, they're not going to be there. So mostly in the midline around the umbilicus, if your hernia center there, that's where you're going to have most uh, of uh, the give as far as uh, the Botox. But certainly, I think if you have big hernias, 
um, you can still inject them even if it is a big subxiphoid hernia because just by relaxing the obliques, you're going to be able to at least get the intra-abdominal contents back into the abdomen easier. And not only has this uh, allowed us to achieve fascial closure in patients we not um, otherwise might have, it's reduced the amount of c component separation that we're doing. And I think we can all agree that that is a good thing when we are reducing the amount of uh, muscle splitting techniques that we're using um, and uh, uh, morbidity that's traditionally associated with that. Um, the next tool that we want to talk about kind of in our toolbox, uh, Dr. Pulse, will you discuss uh, progressive pneumoperitoneum? Yeah, thanks, Sully. Uh, so progressive pneumoperitoneum is another option that we use sometimes in conjunction with Botox a little bit of a higher risk profile compared to Botox uh, in that as we insufflate the abdomen, the patients are at higher risk of developing TVT, um, and therefore they need to be uh, therapeutically anticoagulated. Our general protocol is that we'll place a Hickman catheter about three weeks prior to their planned uh, hernia repair, and uh, three times a week we'll bring them into the clinic. So this is done as an outpatient, uh, and we'll instill ambient air via three-way stopcock that's connected to operative tubing with the bacteriostatic filter. Uh, Dr. Hennifer, can you tell me a little bit about which patients you consider progressive pneumoperitoneum and who's a good candidate for this, who may not be as good of a candidate? Yeah, so we we did pneumoperitoneum first, and then, and it can be very effective, but then I think you were right about Botox. And there's there are great studies from Valencia, Spain, demonstrating the difference between Botox and pneumoperitoneum. And, and in their study, pneumoperitoneum carried a 15% complication rate. Now, if we're going to use pneumoperitoneum, it's essentially always with Botox. We actually take the patient to the operating room, place a Hickman catheter, and have radiology do the injection in the operating room. And then we'll wait uh, about three weeks, let the, the Botox take effect. We'll do pneumoperitoneum for about three weeks. And where I had previously always used these were fairly small defects with massive loss of domain. And it's it, it can be very effective. There's data now actually from France and, and elsewhere that pneumoperitoneum by itself in large defects, I always thought that you would just be stretching the skin with large defects, but actually there's some really good data now from France that demonstrates it's it can be very effective for large defects as well. And so I think we're going to get back into the business uh, of this is relatively new data. I think you're right about the, the consideration of anticoagulating these patients. Uh, the patients in whom that you would not want to do this in are patients with pulmonary disease. If they have someone who has significant pulmonary disease, I would worry about that. Car significant cardiac disease, I would worry about them as well. And I think that you know, when we do this, doing it as an outpatient, we can do this very successfully. Uh, three times a week, inject about two liters each time they come into the clinic, just ambient air. You don't need anything super special. Um, but uh, anyway, I think it's I think it's good. That's interesting. You, I think you bring up a good point on patients who may not be as good of a candidate uh, with respiratory disease, et cetera. I know a common question as it relates to Botox is if you have those same concerns in terms of patients with chronic pulmonary disease, if injecting Botox into the abdominal wall might blunt their accessory muscle use and cause any respiratory issues. We've actually done it in patients with COPD. I've never done it in patients on home oxygen. But patients who can walk from the parking lot but have COPD, we've, we've done it in those patients. We use Botox, yeah. 
And uh, now uh, for our uh, operative consideration here, what about um, component separation, Dr. Pulse? Yeah, so you briefly mentioned this earlier, and I think it's very interesting. Um, so here at the Carolinas, we most commonly perform a totally preperitoneal ventral hernia repair, uh, and this allows us to get excellent mesh overlap without uh, performing any kind of you know, muscle splitting component separation unless it's absolutely needed to close the fascia. And one thing that I've noticed this year is that I think we have done such a good job with prehabilitating patients with weight loss and appropriately selecting patients for Botox uh, with large defects and loss of domain. We haven't done very many component separations this year. Well, I think that that's important. I mean, for us, what we would like to do, that we, one, we need to control uh, uh, comorbidities prior to surgery. Then we got to get the fascia closed and then appropriately use mesh. If we can do those three things successfully, we can cure most patients, even very large defects. And so I have done lots and lots and lots of component separations, but I'm trying to I'm trying to get that out of my practice. You know, enough weight loss and Botox, and then plus or minus pneumoperitoneum in these patients, and component separation. It's it's a it's an audible call in the operating room most of the time. Yeah, so I think uh, one thing that we need to kind of clarify for our listeners is the fact that we actually place our mesh in the preperitoneal space most of the time, even with these big loss of the main hernias, that we're actually able to strip the peritoneum down around the entire abdominal wall ca uh, cavity and then close it, and then we place our mesh there. A lot of times, uh, many of our listeners have done TAR procedures, the transverse abdominal release that we can discuss, and sometimes these procedures are actually done to exclude the mesh from um, the intestines, which uh, which is not something that we do here in the practice in our practice, because we really want um, the component separation to be done where it's actually being used uh, for the purpose of mobilizing the anterior sheath, so you can close the midline fascia. I mean, I think uh, all of these, anytime you cut muscle or fascia, uh, there's a price to pay, and you're burning bridges. So whatever you can do to just do preperitoneal, and we can discuss some of these uh, different procedures. I mean, I, I do. If I, most of the time, if I'm doing a component separation, it's an anterior component separation. We're actually cutting the external oblique muscle, separating from the internal oblique muscle. Uh, I do a lot of paniculectomies. Uh, and for some of these, especially loss of domain cases, uh, where I'm actually going to take the peritoneum down, close the peritoneum, and then I'll do an external oblique release, especially uh, if you have these M1 hernias in the top of the abdomen, because you can take this release all the way up onto the uh, costal um, ridge and really um, get a good release in that area, subxiphoid. TARS, you want to tell us about TARS, Todd? Well, TAR, for the most part, it is like an extension of the uh, reeve stopa repair. You take the posterior sheath down, uh, you're going to transect the uh, pushal lamella of the internal oblique with or without the transverse abdominus muscle, get into the preperitoneal space by going through the transversalis fascia, and then it's just you can you can dissect really wide, put a huge piece of mesh in, and there is there is use for that absolutely. And for me, if, when I'm in the operating room, and let's say we've done what we can prior to surgery, I've taken down the adhesions to the abdominal wall, and I'm making my mind up: do I need a component separation or not? I will mobilize the skin and subcutaneous tissues back a bit. I mean, you you want to stay within two centimeters of good fascia, unless you're going to do an external oblique release, because you increase your chance of wound complications, and so. But once I've done that and the fascia is not going to come together, one of the first things to do is to cut the posterior sheath. And you, you know, people think that cutting the posterior sheath is not going to give you release. It absolutely will. And it's a big part of doing a transverse abdominal release. And it's also part of doing 
doing the, tra the traditional Ramirez external oblique release. That will give you a couple of centimeters of release that allows the muscle to stretch forward and allows the anterior fascia to stretch forward. And that'll give you a couple of centimeters. Now, when we're putting tension on the abdominal wall at that point, everything is, all the abdominal contents are reduced in the abdomen. If we're greater than about six centimeters, I'm doing an external oblique release. I, I believe, and, and I think I can speak for Dr. Augenstein, we believe that an external oblique release gives us more release than a transverse abdominal release, especially after you've already cut the posterior sheath. Less than six centimeters, transverse abdominal release will be helpful, and you may have to do it on both sides, and there's no problem doing, doing a tar on one side, an external oblique release on the other side, or tar on both sides, or external oblique release on, on both sides, but don't do a tar on one side and an external oblique release on the same side. You only leave the uh, anterior fascia, the internal oblique, and the internal oblique muscle behind. But So six centimeters, greater than six centimeters, I start with a unilateral external oblique release, then I assess and if it's still not coming together, I'll do an external oblique release on the other side. Does that, that make sense, Sully? Yeah, that's very clear. And could you guys just tell us uh, briefly about this concept of perforator sparing uh, anterior component separation? I know that in our data, at least, uh, that significantly decreased some of that wound morbidity that's been traditionally associated with doing an external oblique release. Yeah, so this is what's described both in Texas and in Chicago. Uh, by you know, fantastic plastic surgeons, Dr. Butler and Damanian, uh, described saving the perforators. And these come from the deep epigastrics, and they mostly are clustered two centimeters above the umbilicus and five centimeters below the umbilicus. And if you will save those and actually dissect the subcutaneous tissues off of the abdominal wall above that, out laterally to where you can find the external oblique, above and below, you can develop a plane and leave essentially a uh, essentially a pie-shaped bit of subcutaneous tissue. And I'll just mark the abdominal wall. Two centimeters above, five centimeters below. This is my no-go zone here. And so I'll then do my external oblique release above, external oblique release below. And as Jeff Janice has described, you can slip a plastic yankar in there so it doesn't transmit cautery and then cautery over the top of this uh, plastic yankar under, after you slipped it underneath the remainder of the external oblique. And I was just going to say one last thing about component separations is that we, we really are constantly measuring and remeasuring in the operating room um, because you can look at CAT scans, you can look at patients, but you really don't have any idea of the compliance of the abdominal wall until you get in there, you do your lice of adhesions, you elevate the skin flaps that you're going to need to close the abdominal wall, and then you really put some coker clamps and pull the fascia together. And that's that's when you go, as Todd described, you do the posterior sheath first, remeasure, maybe you need a tar, remeasure, but don't come into the operating room and say, oh, I'm just going to do a bilateral tar today, because that's that's really not how you make your decisions, you know, because you, you'll make mistakes. I would just say that, like I often say, that in, uh, one option is no option. And we want a tailor-made hernia repair for patients. We want to spare their muscles if at all possible. I would certainly want mine spared uh, if possible. One last thing about the, the perforator sparing is when we looked at perforator sparing external oblique release, and we did lots and lots of TARS, and we've done lots of external oblique releases without saving the perforators, but when we compared uh, perforator sparing external oblique release to non-perforator sparing external oblique release, significantly decreased our wound complications, and especially the hissing of the skin and subcutaneous tissues due to the blood supply. Then we compared TAR to perforator sparing external oblique release, and the complication rates were the same. So you can't, so you know, people took external oblique release off the table because of the wound complications. I totally get it, totally get it. But 
if you do perforator sparing, it came back onto the table for us because it gives us a, it gives us great release. And again, if you're worried about wound complications, but in our data, our recurrence rate's higher in patients whom, whom we don't get the fascia together. I think one of the themes here um, today is the um, desire to reduce wound complications because we know that is kind of the main driver for hernia recurrence. So um, could you guys talk a little bit about your approach in terms of actually closing the skin and the subcutaneous tissues and things that we've found successful to minimize wound morbidity there? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think optimization is a huge uh, factor as far as decreasing wound complications. But as far as like skin subcutaneous tissue, I think uh, resecting redundant skin flaps. I do a lot of paniculectomies. I think that's important. Only elevate the subcutaneous tissue that you need. Um, just just because you're doing um, a hernia and a paniculectomy doesn't mean you need to go all the way above the costal edge to um, see everything. So, uh, and then drain placement, we place a drain usually on the mesh and then one in the sub-Q space. Uh, the ones in the sub-Q space usually stay until they're less than 30 cc's per 24 hours. And then we've been doing uh, some delayed primary closures and talk, can talk a little bit about that. But I'm a huge fan of the um, the negative incisional uh, vac uh, dressings. I think those have really uh, decreased the risk of postoperative wound complications. I think, Bedra, you demonstrated in a big series of over 600 paniculectomies with uh, Fentor hernia repair that that the actual negative uh, wound vac therapy to the skin improved our outcomes. That absolutely decreased uh, wound complications. I think it was like from 35 to like less than 10 percent. So, so as far as patients. Uh, with contaminated wounds in patients who have mesh infections, who have fistulas and that sort of thing. <clears throat> Again, we want to decrease our wound complications in those people. Do you do you put a vac in and let them go home with a, a standard vac in their subcutaneous space? Or if you close them and they develop a wound complication, but I'll just say like when we started looking at our vac patients, because some of these patients will have wound complication rates of 65%, and we just send them home with a vac and you think they're going to do fine. First, in our data, it took 127 days for them, to, for them to heal their wounds. Four months, more than four months. Also, too, what we found was is it didn't prevent them from developing skin and subcutaneous complications. But sometimes the back at home is not placed as deeply as it should be. If people develop fluid collections. They have to have their wound reopened. So what we started doing is a delayed primary closure. And this actually comes from, from World War One, where you actually, but we're using a back. So we'll mobilize the skin and subcutaneous tissues, do resect fistulas, take out mesh, whatever we need to do, get their fascia closed, put a wound back in, we change it every other day, and either on the fourth, fifth, or sixth day, we actually will take the patient back to the operating room and do a delayed primary closure of the drains. Take the vac out, wash everything out, make sure everything looks good, dissect or, or resect any subcutaneous tissues that, that's not perfectly viable, and then close over drains. I mean, Sully, you actually published this paper. You want to add to that? Yeah, I think what we found when we did that in the contaminated and the dirty setting is that we were much less likely to need to reopen the wound. There are fewer wound complications, um, and patients just did drastically better than they would in a very high-risk setting. So I think that that's kind of become the standard of care here at our institution, and a lot of other places, it seems like, around the country are starting to adopt this. Dr. Argenstein, did you have something to say? So everything, once you guys do everything, we just talked about exactly like we do it. Uh, I think one thing that's important to mention for these loss-of-domain patients, post-operatively, they can be very challenging to take care of. And 
as a lot of these patients may end up in the ICU. Uh, Todd and I have never seen compartment syndrome, although we always get asked about that in loss of the main patients. Um, I think also Botox probably helps with that. But uh, usually if you can close the abdominal wall and these patients are not getting massive resuscitation, you're not going to see compartment syndrome. Uh, but some of them may have some acute renal failure and they may also end up on a ventilator. We don't keep them intubated, uh, but these are all important things. So you can't do this at a hospital that doesn't have good ICU care. And, uh, you know, not, not to get too nervous if the creatinine goes up a little bit because we do see that for the loss of the main patients. Anything else, Todd? I mean, you've had a lot of experience with these cases, so. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It, you know, in these patients with loss of domain, uh, about 9% of these people will end up in the ICU. And either, and typically on high flow oxygen, it's pretty uncommon that we'll have to intubate the patients. But moving to the ICU, you need to, you need to be ICU ready if you're going to do well. Uh, big loss of domain cases. Absolutely. I think, you know, one thing that we can all agree on is that uh, this discipline uh, is becoming more formalized and we're studying these concepts and we're doing a lot of multi-center trials now. So I think the future is bright for hernia repair in general. Where do you kind of see this going in terms of loss of domain specifically in terms of predicting who will be at risk for for complications potentially, et cetera? Well, I mean, first, and we've published a number of papers trying to trying to predict this. And if you look at the patients who are at the greatest risk of developing pulmonary issues, of course, it's the patients with asthma, patients with COPD, and surprisingly in our data, diabetics. I was, I was surprised by that information. And then when you start to break down the size of the defect, you know, again, the larger the defect, the greater the chance of issues. But also, too, uh, and again, this came from Katie Slosser when she worked with us and published a paper looking at that when you got to 48% of what's on the inside is on the outside, so it's almost a 50-50 ratio, those were the patients at the greatest risk of developing pulmonary insufficiency after surgery. That's excellent. Um, I think that it would be nice to have a couple patient scenarios to wrap this all up. Uh, Monica, you want to start off with one? Sure. Um, So let's consider a 66-year-old woman uh, with a previous history of a midline laparotomy for a sigmoid colon resection for diverticulitis. Uh, she has a CT scan that demonstrates a 12-centimeter defect. Her current BMI is 43. She's a non-smoker, diabetic, uh, with her most recent A1C being 8 on oral uh, medications. And this hernia is significantly impacting her functional ability, and she really wants to have this hernia repaired. Um, so in this scenario, you know, we I think we would do the basic things, again, an assessment of her quality of life, what her goals are uh, in terms of the hernia repair, uh, whether she has any sort of acute symptoms for the hernia obstructions, et cetera. Um, but I think this patient's a really good example of someone that we can optimize in the preoperative setting uh, from a, the standpoint of her BMI uh, and reducing um you know, the visceral fat and, and hopefully improving our chances of getting her abdomen closed with a large defect, uh, improving her diabetic control, ideally to an A1C of below 7.2, as that is where our data has demonstrated uh, decreased chances of wound complications. Um, and so say she comes back to clinic and she's lost 50 pounds. Dr. Hennerford, uh, what are your thoughts on potentially considering Botox for this patient? Well, for the most part, it's about getting her abdomen closed. You know, if she comes in and she's lost weight and she's gotten her diabetes under control, we're, in, we're winning. And then it's weight loss to the point of getting her abdomen closed. And if she can lose enough weight for me to get her abdomen closed primarily, we're done. 
and I feel like in the clinic that I can't get her abdomen closed, then we would consider using Botox. And we've been, and I, I don't want to use the term necessarily aggressive about using Botox, but but certainly we want to get someone's abdomen closed. The other considerations, I don't think I would use pneumoperitoneum in, in someone like this. And then there's component separation of the OR. And then in the future, there's uh, intraoperative fascial tension uh, where there's something called fasciotens, which is now in, in Europe, which may be helpful for us uh, in the United States. The, the guys in Hamburg uh, in Germany have described this uh, extremely well. That's excellent. Um, I'm going to go uh, quickly through a second case, Dr. Arnstein, with you. Um, this one's a little bit more complicated. Uh, this time when we have a 50-year-old gentleman, multiply recurrent hernia, this is kind of more typical what we see here, um, that has a uh, M1 component um, with a BMI of 34. Uh, he does not smoke. Uh, he's not diabetic. Um, CT shows uh, significantly retracted uh, rectus musculature. Um, his previous repairs have all been with biologic mesh. Um, so in this scenario, um, you opted again for preoperative injection with Botox. Um, however, intraoperatively, when you put cokers on the anterior fascia, there's still a seven centimeter defect um, and the fascia doesn't come together readily. How would you approach this? Yeah, so some of the tricks you can do always, you know, can elevate the subcutaneous tissue, subcutaneous tissues a little bit. That'll give you a little bit of a release in your, uh, on your fascia. Uh, other things that you can do is uh, cut the posterior rect- uh, rectus sheath and then also do a uh, interior component separation, take it all the way up on the, the costal edge, as I discussed earlier, and this will really help. So uh, main thing is you just don't want to bridge, so you don't want to be in, t- in that uh, scenario. So do everything preoperatively so you don't get into that scenario. Avoid bridging, avoid wound complications, try to minimize recurrence, kind of take us out of this cycle of hernia repair that we're all too familiar with. Uh, Monica, are we time for the quick hits? Yeah, let's do it, Sully. Um, So, you know, this episode discussed loss of domain and how we define loss of domain. And though there is no universally accepted definition, sort of, as Dr. Hennifer mentioned, you know it when you see it. Um, But certainly if if greater than 50% of the intra-abdominal volume is contained within the hernia, that would certainly be considered loss of domain. Um, You know, surgical component separation is certainly one method um, by which we can help achieve fascial closure in these patients, but that's associated uh, with increased wound morbidity risk, and we know that wound morbidity increases subsequent risk of hernia recurrence. Um, And so there are some techniques that we can use to mitigate these risks, such as the the periumbilical perforator sparing technique for anterior component separation. But ideally, I think if we can avoid doing a component separation, that would be ideal and so, you know, optimizing the patient preoperatively in terms of weight loss, uh, considering Botox in certain patients with loss of domain and contracted lateral abdominal walls can really help us avoid component separations um, and, and the wound morbidity that comes along with that. Wonderful. Um, so before we wrap it up, I will say that the articles that we discuss in this podcast will be made available on the BTK website along with the uh, CME credits. Um, But for now, uh, this is the Behind the Knife Hernia team from Carolina's Medical Center reminding you to dominate the day. Thank you. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.